Welcome back, everyone. Perspectives with Justin Brees, episode four. There are two disclaimers we have to say before every show, and here they are. The opinions expressed here reflect the judgment of the author as of the date of the report and are subject to change without notice. Any market prices are only indications of market values and are subject to change. The material has been prepared or distributed solely for information purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. Additional information is available upon request. This performance presented is past performance, which is not a guarantee of future results. Current performance may be lower or higher than the performance quoted. Investment return and principal value will fluctuate, so that and investor units, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. One other thing to mention, Due to outside constraints, we had to delete some of the podcast, so we'll be jumping into the discussion about halfway through, where Justin is talking about analysts. One thing that I know you have mixed feelings about are analysts. I know you had mentioned before to me, the only thing analysts are there for is to form a narrative around a price, and as uh, as the price changes, so does their sentiment as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you use analysts as a sentiment indicator? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, one of our main objectives of this podcast is hopefully impart some wisdom, hopefully impart some wisdom mainly through experience. And, you know, the 20 plus, plus years I've been doing this, you know, I've learned many lessons again the hard way by putting a, a tremendous amount of faith in the value of analysts or, or lack thereof, as I've come to realize over time. You know, I, you know, and I'm not trying to disparage because, you know, they're smart people and they put in some serious work. But what I've realized is very similar to retail investors or just people, you know, the sentiment is the driver and they basically will take the price. You know, the price will drive the sentiment. So they just follow the price. So, you know, the, so the analysts will go through, I mean, you know, perfect example, like in 2021, when everything was just going nuts. I mean, when you had the SPACs coming out, when you had the, uh, you know, the meme stocks, you had the AMC, you had uh, GameStop, anything was just going absolutely insane. You had names that were trading, say, $5 years or less that went to $70, $80. And what do the analysts do? They come up with a narrative to justify $80, $90, $100. And then the minute these things crash back to earth as they, as they should, and then you inevitably you kind of know they're going to, what do the analysts do? They put a sell rating, and as soon as it goes down to, or at least a hold, they create a narrative as to why it should be around 4 or $5. So I think the they don't really provide any sort of direction. And I think, again, I think that's something I've learned, uh, again, the, the, the tough way, and especially going through you know, 2008, 2009, you know, I remember staring at some of those, uh, staring at, at some of those uh, analyst targets, saying, "Well, that that you know, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it." It's you know they still have an eighty dollars price target. Yeah, the thing's at ten dollars now, but stick with it. Well, that's again, that's uh, unfortunately that's just not the way it works. It, they're reactionary. So what do they provide other than some interesting intellectual uh, stimulus, if you will, um, for what that's worth? And it's not all. I mean, there are, there are definitely some really good ones that are you know, that have conviction that don't just follow price. So I, you know, I won't I won't say every single one is that way, but I'm just talking very you know, a very general swath. But the to me, the better and more useful 
role they play in our world is for sentiment. And just like we were talking about in October, when you saw the, the extreme level of bearishness from retail and from individual investors, hedge funds, a whole bit. Well, that's the same thing with analysts. As I've said, going into this year, it reminded me so much of 2013. I mean, 2013, we went into that with, you know, almost every analyst was pounding the table. It's going to be a rough year. You were going to have uh, negative returns. All the doom and gloom was out there. And what did the S&P do? It was up 30 plus percent. And I think this is once again, going into this year, I, you know, I rarely have ever seen this much consensus where analysts were just not only uh, negative, but they were vociferously negative. They were pounding the table that it was going to be a really bad year. And I think that's once again a fallacy because they, like individual investors left to their own devices, are going to look in the rearview mirror and make their decisions, make their predictions based upon that. And that's unfortunate. And that's really unfortunate. But what's exciting at this juncture is that they are just now starting to capitulate. And I think part of the whole, our thesis on the melt-up 2.0, amongst many things, especially the seasonality that we talked about last week, is that analysts are just starting to throw in the towel and realize that it's as, we're now seeing in August, the markets are up well into the mid to upper teens, depending, again, on the equity side and NASDAQ, much more than that. And they're still bearish. I mean, you look at, uh, well, I'm not going to mention any names, but certain people who, who, who last year were heralded as, as essentially having the crystal ball, who just now did his mea culpa uh, after missing 25, 30% from the bottom. And, you know, it's, I, I, I couldn't help but giggle a little bit because it's like, oh, yeah, it's a, yeah, when you start to see those type of indications and you start to see some capitulation, that to me is going to be another catalyst as to, as to you know, why the market continues to power up. But that hasn't fully happened yet. And the other thing that caught me, uh, caught my fancy this weekend, I was reading some st- uh, statistics. Did you know, Gavin, that flows for the year are still negative? There was one month, one week in June was the only week in which people put money into equities. But $8 billion left the market last week. So eight, that is interesting. $8 billion came out of the market. So people are still continuing to pull money out of the market. Do you, what, what are the things that you look for? So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned that not every analyst is a perma bear or bad or, you know, just saving themselves and following a, following a price trend. What do you look for in analysts that are good? What are the things that you find intriguing in a good analyst that you take note of? Well, I think, you know, having, obviously having conviction and building a, a rationale around it. Um, analysts who have the ability to, again, to, as we, as we referred to earlier, to be able to understand that markets in life are dynamic and that, yes, you might have had conviction, but the facts have changed, so you need to change. And I think, and I think that's incredibly important. And I think analysts who, who have um, 
I think it's, and this is going to sound very, very basic, but I think it's important for analysts to, and strategists in general, to bring things back to the big picture. That if you're going to be invested in the markets, play with the odds. Play with the odds on your side. And that's why I think it's just amazing to me that, you know, I, I get it. You have to justify your position. And the more, the more numbers, the more fear, the more metrics you can throw at people, to you, the more that, you know, it, it, that resonates. As, as we've talked about, negative information resonates at a much higher level than positive. People trust things that are negative and, and, um, and the optimism just doesn't, again, it just doesn't have that same resonance that the negativity does. So I think it's really difficult on, you know, trying to look at it from their perspective because being optimistic just sounds not very intellectually stimulating. You don't sound like you deserve a job to say. <laughs> I, think, I think the thing that's interesting is the, uh, it kind of strikes me, the more optimistic you are, there's a lot less worry. So because it's it's so much simpler to be optimistic in the long term than it is to be super in depth with why things could, could go wrong in the short term, that it almost comes off to people that you don't know what you're talking about that's, somehow. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, as we've said, I mean, think about just how silly that sounds, like the way we sounded back in October. I mean, I remember when I was explaining that to people, explaining that to people in, in September of last year. I, and, and they were looking at me like, are you out of your mind? How can you be that up? Your case for being optimistic and why we should be investing in stocks is because everyone's so negative. That's it. And I said, yeah. So let's don't overcomplicate things. Don't overcomplicate things. And they looked at me and said, but wait a minute. All these other people are saying this and that. And I just heard from a certain strategist who said that. Da, 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 da. And they said this has happened. And then politics. Okay. And then, you know, they, that's the other thing. You know, in this highly charged political environment, people are so influenced by that. And that's sad because politics plays very little role in markets. And in fact, if, you know, and not to go too deep on the politics side, but that's another reason for the melt-up 2.0 theory. You know, as we said, we're in the third year of a presidential election. And that is, history shows year after year that this is the most powerful, most positive year for markets. They want to get reelected. So what do they do? They juice the economy. They want to feel, they want people to feel good. Because it's the economy that matters. You know, it's, it's the, the famous <laughs> Bill Clinton or someone referenced Britney Spears. Or you tried to give credit to Britney Spears for the, it's the economy, stupid. Belt <laughs> up 2.0 is because Britney Spears is still alive. <laughs> we actually got in a, a debate about that. I was like, I don't think it was Britney Spears who said it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was That's Bill funny. Clinton. <laughs> but, you know, when you, when you look at that, I, I think you... You have to understand uh, where we are, even on the political environment, even though, again, politics ultimately does not play a big role. It is a factor. And, you know, all those different policies that were, uh, were put in place but have not been funded, they're going to get funded next year. So that's like, for instance, the CHIPS Act, all the infrastructure, all that stuff, you know, is the, the actual money is going to start flowing at the end of this year next year you don't think that's by design it is super interesting and it's like uh 
negative sentiment analysts, like you said, will be another factor in the melt-up 2.0 just from money purely coming in off the sidelines, which is obviously a, a, a phenomenon that we've talked pretty extensively about. The one other thing I wanted to ask you, I know a lot of common folk don't read as much as we do and pay attention to like specific stock market analysts. I feel like in my head, the analysts that they are listening to are more so like news anchors and then uh, economic analysts that are employed by the news media company. Do you want to speak a little bit about the effect of news media sentiment on individual people? Because I feel like that, I'm sure the audience itself, that that is where most of their commentary probably comes from. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. Um, and I think that speaks to a bigger point. Like, what is our, what are our objectives? What are we trying to accomplish for our clients? Well, one of the many ones is that they don't have to be watching Bloomberg. They don't have to be watching CBC, Fox News. Yeah, turn that stuff off. You don't need to. That's our job. And here's part of the reason, you know, we want to give you that financial independence, pursue things you enjoy, you know, be able to get outside, spend time with quality, you know, your loved ones, do things that are meaningful into you, into your life, impactful in your life. And here's one of the other reasons why is because their interests are misaligned with yours. They have every reason to drive fear, fear and viewership are correlated. They, they end up having more people watching at the highest moments of stress. So naturally, their incentives are to, cr to create as much emotion and create as much fear because that garners viewership. Our job is to turn that off and have you turn off the TV and not have to deal with that. Because ultimately, you're going. Time history shows you stick to a plan, you have a plan, you stick to a plan, you're going to win. That's something they never mention either. Is it because everything is, you know, and I understand it because from their perspective, they have to be in the here and now because it's a news station. But I've never seen anything because we have Bloomberg and all. I mean, any news media site doesn't it doesn't matter. Bloomberg, Yahoo, Finance, you know, even like Fox, CNBC, anything. None of them mention the markets are bad now. But if you just hold for 30 years or whatever, you're more than likely you're going to be fine. I've never seen any of them mention that explicitly. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think they're tapping into, obviously, with the uh, proliferation of social media and the so-called TikTok brain, where you know, people's attention span is you know, less than an ant. I mean, you've got two seconds maximum uh, to keep people's attention. Um, and so that that's all the more reason why, you know, again, they're, they're trying to play into that. And then... And that's sad because people aren't taking the time to really go deep. And so my point is, if you're not going to go deep, then just turn it off. I mean, that's what, that's our job. And yes, we have information and, and I, you know, look, I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly, um, you know, analyzing, seeking out different opinions, seeking out other ways, other perspectives. But I think, again, one of the many lessons I've learned is to be very judicious as to who we're actually paying attention to. What's the source of the information? What's their motive? And I go back to Charlie Munger's sign, or a great quote, show me, the, show me the incentives and I'll show you the, uh, the outcomes. 
And so that's so important to remember as to who and what, who are they, you know, what's the source? What's their incentive? I think one thing that's also super interesting that clients might not appreciate, uh, sorry, I can't speak, appreciate as much about what, about being exposed to you specifically is that because you're, you're so good at being able to form your own opinions, essentially when, when clients come to you and they agree to be a, you know, they, they agree to have a relationship with you, they're getting direct access into a uh, like manifestation of your like direct thoughts and ideas from your head. Because when you, when you take all these analyst recommendations and price targets and sentiment and everything into account, you take it, you process it into your own way, and then you act. So you're not acting on someone else's decisions. You're making your own decisions and manifesting that into a client's life. So in a way, they're getting direct access into your thoughts and ideas, which I think is super interesting that a lot of people don't really think about when, when they go into relationships with a financial manager is that you got to really, I feel like you have to really understand who the person is and how their thought processes actually work. Yeah. And I think you, it's, gosh, there's so much to be uh, said about what you um, just raised. And I think it's very wise what you raised. And yeah, again, without overstating too much, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, we work at this job. I mean, we truly work at this profession and it's seven days a week. Um, and a part of that job is to be able to filter through, to be that distilling factor, to go through and truly uh, you know, do that work for you so you don't have to do that, to take you know, time, perspective, and run it through the filters. And then, okay, how do we manifest this? How do we put this into action? Do we put this into action? Do we make the tough decisions that you're not willing to make? Uh, again, October of last year, September of last year. I mean, it was, it, it, took, it took a Herculean effort to convince people, um, you know, left to their own device to convince people to go into the markets. But that's the point is that we're making, we're, we're the ones who are going to make the decisions on your behalf, um, even in the, some of the most challenging times when in, in the face of the weight of evidence is screaming to the other side to step in, have the conviction. But I think it's also really important to, there was one thing that you, that, um, you brought up that made me, uh, it made me think about, you know, if I were in your perspective, and again, I'm trying not to be self-serving because I'm, I'm incredibly blessed with my family and, uh, um, and, you know, having just an amazing life on the home front. But I think that if I were to give advice or write a book about, okay, what are the steps that you look at as far as, um, hiring, like what are the decision, the criteria of hiring an advisor? I think one of the most important, if not the most important, would be to analyze the person themselves, if you could. Because what's the good, unless unless the advisor is just basically cookie cutter and you know taking the whatever bank or firm's recommendations and that's it. You know, you, it's your McDonald's effect. Do you want, you know, the menu, more the so menu, than you right? Exactly, um, and obviously that exists, and you know there's there positives and negatives to that uh, philosophy. Obviously, I'm not in that camp, and we're not in that camp. You know, we we manage things with discretion, and uh, on your behalf uh, for all the different reasons we've talked about. But I think if you're not going to go with something a cookie cutter you know, McDonald's effect, then I think it's really important to understand. 
personalities to understand the is this person grounded? Um, how can I how can I trust this person to be able to make tough, tough emotional decisions if they're not emotionally stable themselves? What are the factors that they are doing in their life? What are the decisions they make on their daily life as best as you can to determine if they are emotionally sound, if they have the the ability to step back in some of the most stressful situations? Do they have support on the home front? Do they have the ability to get a good night's sleep? Do they have ability to get a proper meal, to exercise? Those are things that I think, you know, most people I, I can't imagine are interviewing when they're interviewing for an advisor, they would go into. I think that's a really interesting point. And the, the thing that comes right into my head that I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think, like what events in your life do you think have led you to being able to make these tough decisions? I know like you have an extensive job experience history, obviously. Is there anything outside of the work environment? Because I know like one, one of the things for me that I'll share with the audience is my dad died when I was three. And I think that has played a huge role in my emotional life and emotional intelligence being raised without a dad and with my mom and two sisters, <laughs> which has been an interesting experience for the 24 years of my life. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that's just given me a different emotional perspective that I feel like a lot of people could never get. Is there anything like that for you? I think, yeah, lots of different moments. You know, I think it's, just, yeah, it's a cumulative effect of the summers spent you know, with my grandparents and on the outskirts of, in the, on the farms of St. Louis of talking investments. Uh, you know, I, I saw it firsthand. You know, my, my grandparents, you know, they were farmers, dentists, they, but their true passion was investing. And so we would, you know, we walk the land. We talk about value investing. Uh, we would come home in the evening after fishing or tending to the cows, all the above. We go down. We you know, we would shower up, go down in the basement, and we would get out the magazines and Forbes, uh, Wall Street Journal, and we would go through. And then he would get out. His, my grandfather would get out his journals, and we would go down the line and we would uh, look at all the different years of the steady, steady investing, you know, seeing how the dividends, the dividend compounding. So those type of experiences you know, play such a indelible role in, uh, in who I am. Um, you know, the, have that foundation to see it firsthand, to understand that you can be someone who has so-called modest means and be fabulously successful through discipline, sticking through this. And I saw it firsthand. I mean, my, my grandparents lived very, very humbly. I mean, I don't think they took it one trip in their life. I don't know if they bought more than one car. And when they passed away, it was, it was impressive. And so seeing that firsthand was, I think, an invaluable experience understand the weight, the gravity, the discipline, what it takes to sacrifice and what the potential is by sticking with the markets. Um, so I think that was you know, one that comes right to mind. I mean, there's so many other um, you know, areas that I can, I can speak to. Uh, you know, again, we've, we, we hit on that very first pro- podcast about some of the different situations in my life that I've been in that have, I think, given me uh, a unique ability to handle very, very stressful situations. 
Um, I'm actually quite at ease in those type of scenarios based upon everything from you know, the legal side to investment banking to negotiating major league contracts in various different leagues to you know having that responsibility that people put in you know, and trust in you to essentially uh, lead them through so many different aspects and so many different challenges in their life. And then again, even in this industry, having gone through so many different things, I mean, 2008, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, uh, COVID, uh, uh, it just, you know, some of these just so-called unprecedented experiences, you, you get perspective. It's like it just makes you fundamentally sound as a whole. That's interesting. Any final thoughts, words of advice, quotes, anything you want to leave the audience with? Well, I think it's, I, I want to also talk about a little, just real briefly about, okay, so where do we go from here? I think in the short term, um, you know, we're entering one of these times where post earnings and there's not much to, not much to talk about, especially on the media, um, other than try to scare you with macro news, you know, geopolitical news. Um, so the, you know, they're going to turn up the volume on, you know, everything from bond issuance, uh, interest rates spiking, all those different stories are going to be coming out and they're coming at you pretty hard. So my point is, in, in the short term, I, who knows, but I, I think that you can have some, you know, some, some, a little bit of weakness, but I think the weakness is going to be uh, pretty, pretty shallow. Um, and I see any of those top opportunities, we're going to be looking to be buying because we think history speaks very clearly to that you stick with it. I mean, I was looking at, again, some statistics over the weekend, um, you know, from Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg was the source of this. When you've had on all just about every occasion other than I think 2001 and 2008, and I think those truly were exceptional times, uh, every time you've had a 10 plus percent midway point in the S&P, the average return for the year end is 30 plus percent. The average return, I'm saying for the full year, the average return for the back half is 12 plus percent. So when people feel like, okay, I've already missed it, I don't think so. I mean, history tells you that you haven't missed it at all. Um, you know, again, we're vigilant as facts change, opinions change, our investment uh, strategy will change. But I, I think that there's still um, many different reasons to be very positive, including the, the factors we uh, on our melt up one and melt up 2.0. So, um, but I would say uh, my final point would be, uh, you know, to your experience. I'm so glad you're here, and I, I want to tell you that uh, you know, I know that sharing that your father passed away, it's, it's a real honor having you here, and um, just how much I appreciate you being a part of this team, Gavin. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here, and it's going to be a really fun future going forward. Um, again, we appreciate everybody listening. Um, it's, it's not every day you get someone to sit down for 45 minutes of their time and just listen to us talk. Uh, if you have any feedback or anything you would like to share with us, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you, guys. Thank you.